Good evening, everyone. Before we get into tonight's stories, there's a handful of short ones tonight. I have to ask, did you have a good 4th of July? If you celebrate it, that is. I know my audience is not just in the United States, so let me know. Did you have a good 4th of July? If you did celebrate, what'd you do? Have a cookout, hang out with family and friends, what have you. Um, me and my partner just decided to stay inside and try not to heat to death. It was 97, and the humidity was humidity was somewhere in the high 60s, I believe. So we just stayed inside where the AC was, and um, yeah, it was a fine day. We didn't do anything special. <laughs> uh, let me know what you did. I hope it was a safe and fun holiday for anyone and everyone else around the world. I hope you just had a great, great day. Now, let's get into tonight's stories. Some really good ones tonight. You should never acknowledge someone you see out of the corner of your eye. I knew something was wrong the second I woke up, and I was in agonizing pain every time I moved my neck. I figured I must have slept awkwardly, so went down to the chemist and got some items to hopefully relieve the pain. Unfortunately, I couldn't turn my head without a darting pain shooting through my body, so I was forced to look straight ahead. My co-worker kindly called me a manatee as supposedly they cannot turn their heads. I was sitting at my desk, working away, when I first spotted the smiling man out of the corner of my eye. He stood in the corner of the room, wearing what could only be described as a funeral suit with a smile plastered across his face. Stupidly, I tried to spin my head to face him and ended up letting out a shriek of pain as my neck objected to the sudden movement. My co-workers rushed over to check on me before laughing at my predicament. I told them about the smiling man, but they pointed out there was no one here matching that description. I carefully looked around the room and wrote off what I had seen as my imagination playing tricks on me. It was about ten minutes later when the smiling man reappeared in the corner of my vision. This time he was closer and seemed to be looking directly at me. I swiveled my chair to stare at him, but he somehow vanished before I could turn around fully. I cautiously moved toward where he'd been standing and recoiled at the overwhelming smell of sulfur that was in the air. I decided to take my lunch break. Maybe it was just hunger playing tricks on my mind. I came back after lunch and was relieved when he didn't reappear for the rest of the day. I had a restless night's sleep as I could only lie flat on my back and was awoken every time I moved my neck in my sleep. I awoke in my bed and lay in utter darkness and was convinced I'd heard someone moving in my bedroom. My eyes darted from side to side, but I couldn't see any movement. I was about to close my eyes and drift back to sleep when I spotted something white at the edge of my vision. It took me a few seconds to realize it was somebody's teeth. I raised my gaze and spotted a pair of yellow eyes staring directly at me. I lay there frozen in terror as the smile widened further as he sensed my discomfort. Neither of us moved for the next few hours, but I must have fallen asleep at some point as when I awoke he'd vanished. I explained to my co-workers what I'd witnessed, but all of them dismissed it as a nightmare. 
I spent the day typing away at my computer and doing neck exercises in hopes of healing whatever damage I'd unintentionally done to myself. I just returned from my lunch and was finishing a report from my boss when I felt something wet crawling across the side of my face. I instinctively waved it away without looking as I was preoccupied with getting my work done. Whatever it was came back seconds later, so out of frustration I turned my chair around. I managed to stifle my scream as the smiling man's face was inches away from my own. Dozens of tongues were darting out of his mouth and began gently caressing my flesh. He seemed to take great enjoyment out of my predicament as his face inched closer and closer to mine. I heard my boss's voice behind me and I watched as she marched in front of me and began demanding to know where today's TPS report was. I kept darting my eyes toward the smiling man, but she couldn't see him. I reached over and handed her the report as she marched off whilst giving out about me under her breath. The rest of the day went by in a haze as no matter where I went, the smiling man's face was always in front of me. I got absolutely no sleep that night and lay there trembling in fear. I opened my eyes one time to discover him floating above me in the bed. His mouth had opened up wider than I had ever thought possible and I could hear the sounds of dozens of people screaming for help emanating from within. I called in sick from work and booked a session with a chiropractor in the hopes of fixing my neck. I could see what looked like a disappointment on the smiling man's face as I laid out on the table. His face vanished from view as the chiropractor twisted my neck. I almost sobbed with happiness as I could move freely again and had escaped the grasp of whatever that creature was. I went into work the next day with an extra spring in my step and didn't even get upset when my boss gave out to me about a mistake that she had just made. I was sitting there, working away while singing away to myself when I felt the familiar feeling of a tongue rubbing against my cheek. spun my head around 360 degrees but was unable to see anyone. I heard a manic laugh just beside my ear as I realized how badly I screwed up. He wasn't done with me yet and now I was completely at his mercy as I couldn't see him anymore. I ignored my boss screaming at me from across the room as I feel one of his tongues making its way inside my ear. My friends and I were hunted down one by one by a mime. Me and my friends were walking along, cracking jokes, when my best friend Dave elbowed me in the ribs. I was about to give out to him, but stopped when I saw the excitement on his face. I followed his gaze to see a mime standing on the center of the streets. He was in the middle of an act, pretending to be blown away by the wind. Dave hurriedly walked toward him while the rest of us followed in his wake. Dave stood directly in front of the mine with a smirk on his face. The mine kept darting irritated glances at Dave, but continued his act nonetheless. I watched in disgust as Dave suddenly shoved the mine and he fell over. While my friends started laughing before walking away. I mouthed an apology to the mine before throwing in my loose change and rushing after my friends. We headed to our usual hangout, which was our abandoned school. It had been closed down after a pair of seven-year-olds had agreed to a suicide pact. 
We climbed in a broken window and began wandering around aimlessly. My girlfriend Emily and her best friend Chloe were walking directly in front of me and I couldn't help but admire the view. I had to dodge around Dave as he bent down to tie his shoelace. I'd only gone a few paces when I heard a thud from behind me. I turned around to discover Dave standing in the hallway with a confused expression on his face. He was moving his hands in front of him as if rubbing against something. I called the others back and we all laughed at his little game. He kept opening his mouth and seemed to be mouthing something, but I couldn't understand it. He slowly began to lower himself to the ground while pretending to be holding on to something. I heard a gasp behind me and felt my blood run cold as his hand suddenly snapped and I could see the bone jutting out. I rushed forward to help him and collided with some invisible barrier in the center of the floor. We watched in horrified silence as his body began to compress down. I flinched away every time I saw a part of his body break. I turned away moments before his head imploded. The hallway was utterly silent as we were all too stunned. Whatever magic was holding him in place stopped as blood and body parts poured across the floor. His eyeballs landed directly at my feet and I couldn't help but match their accusatory stare. Emily began shrieking at the top of her lungs and I looked up to see the mime from earlier standing at the far end of the corridor. He was smiling away and I felt some malevolent anger oozing from him. We all began backing away as he began hopping toward us. I turned on my heels and fled with the others directly behind me. I dodged into a classroom and hid behind a rotting desk and was relieved when Emily joined me. We clung to each other for support as we heard footsteps entering the room. I peeked under the desk, covered my mouth to stifle a scream as he was standing right over us. Neither of us moved for a few minutes, even after his footsteps had retreated back out to the hallway. I motioned for Emily to follow me and carefully made my way toward the door and was relieved when the hallway was clear. I turned to tell Emily to make a run for it, but the words caught in my throat. Emily was standing there with her hair somehow standing on end. She looked like she was being pushed backwards by some invisible force. I rushed forward and grabbed her hands in an attempt to pull her free. My eyes widened as she suddenly lifted into the air and was now hanging vertically. I held on with all my might, but the strength of whatever was pulling her was immense. Sweat was running down my arms, and I could feel her grip begin to loosen. She mouthed the words, I love you, seconds before her grip failed, and she was flung across the room and collided with the far wall. She lay hanging in the air as I darted over to help. She fell into my arms. The second I touched her and I started telling her we needed to leave, her body lay unmoving on top of me and it took me a few seconds to notice the blood on the back of her head. I almost vomited as I reached over and felt a large hole hidden behind her hair. My eyes darted upward to see a metal coat hook on the wall with a few pieces of her blood-soaked hair still attached. I held onto her body and wept while ignoring the screams of my friends in the distance. It took me a few hours to compose myself and by that time it was starting to get dark outside. I placed my jacket over Emily, assuring her that I'd come back for her. I made my way toward the door and wished that I had moved sooner as the hallway was littered with shadows. My eyes moved from shadow to shadow as I was convinced the mime was in one of them watching me. I heard a scream in the distance, which was then brutally cut off. 
I rushed down the hallway in the opposite direction toward the window we'd climbed in. I let out a scream as some blood-soaked abomination appeared out of one of the shadows. I was instantly relieved when I discovered it was Chloe. She looked shell-shocked, and I'm not sure if the blood was hers or someone else's. I grabbed her hand and had to guide her forward as she seemed unable to move of her own free will. We were mere feet away from the window we'd climbed in when she shook my hand loose. I reached back to grab again and had to wrench my hand back as something wet smashed into my hand. I stared down in wonder as a bruise was already forming where I got hit. Chloe began screaming at the top of her lungs and I moved away from her as her body was being hit repeatedly by some unknown force. Bruises were covering every inch of her flesh and yet her seemingly never-ending scream continued. Her scream began to falter as something shattered one of her eye sockets, leaving a bloody mess inside. She smiled at me moments before a large chunk of her skull caved in and she fell dead to the floor. My attention was drawn to the mime who appeared out of a doorway clapping. He stood over her body and did an extravagant bow. I waited for him to kill me, but... He didn't pay me any heed as he began dragging Chloe's body away, leaving me alone and terrified. I rushed toward the window and climbed out and rushed home while constantly looking over my shoulder in case he was following me. I now keep wondering if giving him that money had saved my life and knowing that you should never anger a street entertainer. I discovered an abandoned fallout shelter. My great uncle Joe, yeah, let's call him that, and I were never really close. I didn't even know I had a great uncle Joe until I was in college. I was bored one day and complained to my mom about how there was nothing to do around here when she mentioned him. He was staying in a nursing home close by, and though she'd made an effort to stop by, understandably, given how far away she lived, I decided to drop by one weekend. Unfortunately, he had a rather advanced case of dementia, which was why he was in the nursing home in the first place. Still, I did drop by, if only for the fact that I had no close family living nearby, and Great Uncle Joe did have his lucid moments at times. He seemed to remember who I was during some visits. There was one thing that he would always go back to, though. A secret hideout of sorts. At first, I thought he was talking about something like a tree fort that he made during his childhood. When I suggested that, he stared at me like I was crazy. No, he said. This was a real hideout, a steel-clad fortress hidden in the woods meant as a fallout shelter in case the Soviets ever decided to end the world. I would have written it off as just some useless ramblings, but he seemed oddly focused while describing it. He described a location in the woods, near a stream and by a patch of trees that I committed to memory. I'd go on walks in the forest from time to time anyway, and it was a few weeks later on such excursion that I realized that I knew what Great Uncle Joe was talking about. I thought it was just a coincidence, but that rock formation really did look like what he described. I'm keeping this vague here so that no one wanders into it like I did. Underneath a rock, hidden by a patch of grass so well that you'll never find it in a thousand years unless you knew about it, I felt it. 
a steel hatch, and with a huge amount of effort I opened it. I felt a manhole there, just barely big enough to let me squeeze through and find my footing on the ladder. I switched on my phone's light and descended. The ladder went about 50 feet deep before there was a sharp turn. I saw some old, broken light bulbs scattered aground as I made my way to the door and fumbled it open. There were two light switches. One of them didn't work, but the other one turned the lights on. The place was huge, almost as big as my whole dorm in college. It had five main rooms and about a dozen smaller ones, probably meant to be used as family rooms. In all, there were four generators, though only one worked. I could have easily spent days crawling through the place. Through a thick layer of dust covered everything, I could still see that there was so much in there that was very valuable. Some of it was directly valuable, in the form of dollar bills, while there was also a stash of gold coins somewhere. They were probably prepared for everything. That wasn't all. There was a library with books and newspapers, even a few comics, which I think would fetch a pretty penny. There was a food and basic medicines, a water purifier had broken down, but I think that was to be expected. There were a few things missing, though. There were weapons, but no bullets for some reason. I even saw some empty shells on the ground as if they'd been fired. I took some stuff, I was a broke college student, don't judge me, and made my way out, making a note to come back sometime later. I went back to Great Uncle Joe the next day first. I didn't know how aware he was of things, but I was sure that he would appreciate the knowledge that someone had found what he'd built so long ago. As so I began talking about it, something flashed across his eyes. It was unmistakable. Fear. He grabbed my hand and started babbling about how I must never go down there. I asked him why, and he just kept saying that they had locked it down there. What's it? Evil was all he said before he went back to sleep. I couldn't get him to say anything afterward. When I went back to the same spot, I noticed something. It was odd. Near the entrance, there was a muddy spot, as it had rained the last night. I saw a footprint. It was massive, nearly the size of my torso. I had never seen anything like it. It was a talon, though it had six toes. Unmistakably, something had wandered out of the shelter. I now understand why it was abandoned, why no one else had gone down there, what the bullets had been used for, in vain. It wasn't a shelter, though it had been built as one. It was a prison, and I let the prisoner escape. A chill still creeps down my spine when I think about how fortunate I was not to have run into whatever it was down there. Maybe it was sleeping, or just didn't find me interesting enough. Eight people. Eight people have recently gone missing in this area, for some of them remains have been found, though only bits and pieces of what were once people. I don't go out at night anymore, and I make sure all my windows and doors are locked, because I'm terrified of what I've just unleashed.
Someone replaced Independence Day with a snuff film. One of my favorite movies growing up was Independence Day. I know there are better movies, but the combination of actors and special effects made it just about perfect in my young brain. I used to drive my parents crazy, not only wanting to watch it, but wanting them to bask in the glory of Randy Quaid in a jet with me. So they finally settled on a compromise. We'd watch it together every 4th of July if I would just shut up about it for the rest of the year. And so we did. During the years I was 8 to 14, we watched it religiously, somewhere between afternoon hot dogs and evening fireworks every year. And it was awesome. But as I got older, my interest changed and I was busier. And I just forgot. Since I was 15, I don't know that I've seen the entire movie more than once. I'm 29 now. So when I found a box of old movies and storage unit in my apartment building, imagine my delight when I spied a Blu-ray of Independence Day sitting right on top. I'd moved into the apartment six months before, and part of the lease agreement was that each apartment had a little storage unit in the basement for excess stuff. It sounded far more grandiose than it actually was. Each unit consisted of a small cinder block room that was the size of a small walk-in closet. Still, it was handy if you had excess stuff. I just didn't. I moved into town for a job, and my furniture initially consisted of my mattress and television from home. Over the past several months, I'd accured enough furniture that I didn't look like a serial killer anymore, but I was still living very frugally. My first real splurge had been the week before when I bought myself a new TV. I was really pumped about it. 4K, HDR, and obscenely big for my small-ish living room. When it got delivered, I started setting it up immediately, but that also meant moving my old TV. I had it since college. It was one of those hulking flat-screen televisions that had a technically a flat screen, but also had a giant two-foot ass that weighed 100 pounds. It wasn't awesome, but I admit to being a little sad as I waddle-dropped it to a piece of cardboard and slid it down out the hallway to the elevator. It was going to be my first deposit into the storage unit. When I opened the door, I saw the box immediately. It was labeled Private Valuables in a spidery black marker scrawl, which struck me as slightly odd, but... When I opened it up and I saw Independence Day, I immediately dragged the TV in and brought the box back upstairs with me. Feeling a wave of nostalgia fueled by a combination of putting my old TV to pasture and the anticipation of seeing evil aliens exterminated with a floppy disk, I pulled out the Blu-ray, popped it in my console, and got ready to watch a modern classic. The video, though, was dark and grainy, and I could tell right away that this wasn't Independence Day. I could see what looked to be the weathered floor of a basketball court at the edge of the illumination provided by twin floodlights set up at the perimeter of the camera's view. In the center of the light was a thin, stained mattress and clear plastic tarps that covered the bedding and surrounding floor. The blackness outside this circle of light combined with The excited breathing of the person holding the camera made the whole thing feel claustrophobic, and the breath only quickened when a large masked man led the naked couple into view. 
They were bound at their necks and wrists, and it was clear that they'd been beaten already. They looked toward the camera as the person holding it approached, and the man let out a terrible low moan of despair. The woman's bottom lip trembled, but she said nothing as tears began to run down her cheeks. I had a brief moment where I thought this was some odd bootleg horror movie I'd never seen before, but it didn't look right. Aside from no credits or music, the entire thing felt too real, even for a well-done found-footage movie. And as the camera had approached the light, the picture had sharpened to an almost painful degree. I could see with agonizing detail the shape these two were in, the emotions they were feeling. They were genuinely terrified. I won't describe the details of what happened next on the video. I lack the stomach or the words to properly convey the torture, cruelty, and depravity I saw inflicted on them over the next 20 minutes. I deeply regret continuing to watch it myself. By the time I came out of my shock and horror enough to turn it off, they were both dying or dead. I didn't know what to do. I thought about calling the police, but what could they do? For all I know, those people had been killed on another continent ten years ago. I, I could just throw it away or destroy it, but what if it really was evidence of something? There was always the outside chance it really was fake, of course. A low-budget, edgy horror movie with wonderful actors and special effects. It sounded dumb as I thought it, but it was what I was hoping for in my heart of hearts. In the end, I went down the next day to the office of the company that owned my building. They leased several apartments all over town, and the only person I was familiar with there, Vicky, was less a landlord and more a real estate agent with a side gig. Luckily, she was in, and within a couple of minutes, I was sitting in her office. I didn't talk about the movie specifically, but I told her about finding a box of what I assumed was the prior tenant's belongings in the storage unit. I wondered if she had any information about him so I could contact him about getting his stuff. In truth, I had no intention of contacting him, but I wanted to know more about them before I made my final decision on what to do. Vicky, a perpetually chipper woman in her mid-fifties with bright blonde hair and a naturally dark tan, visibly paled as I started talking. Three sentences in, and she was already waving her hand and shaking her head. No, honey, don't worry with that. Throw that mess in the trash. No telling what kind of trash she had in there. I raised an eyebrow. So you know who the last tenant was? It was a woman? Her eyes widened slightly as she realized she'd said more than she'd meant to, and she leaned forward with a frown. It was, but no one you want to contact. Look. She glanced around like she was about to divulge the location for a dead drop in a spy movie as she went on. That girl was troubled. Very troubled. She had some rich family in another state that would pay her rent like clockwork, and for a couple of years everything was fine. She was some kind of computer something or another, and she kept to herself most of the time. Then she had some episode where a neighbor of hers went to the hospital and she got committed. Vicky paused a moment, as though gauging if she had said enough to satisfy me, and when she saw she hadn't, she went on. 
She bit the woman, okay? Bit her thumb clean off. The neighbor was okay, mostly. But she moved away soon after, and it's for the crazy girl. As far as I know, she's still in the loony bin somewhere. Either way, we terminated her lease immediately, and her family came and got her stuff. She sighed. Well, except for this crap in the storage area, I guess. Still, I'd just throw it out if I were you. She doesn't have any need for it, whatever it is. And trust me, that's a friend you don't want to make. I was unnerved by what Vicky told me, but at least it gave me some explanation for that disc and whatever else might be in the box. I decided I'd leave well enough alone. As soon as I got home, I'd carry the box down to the incinerator and try to put what I'd seen out of mind. Except when I got back to my apartment, there was a thick envelope waiting against my door. It had no writing on it, and once I got inside and opened it, I saw it contained a cell phone with no note or explanation. I felt a new wave of unease as I looked at the phone weighing, exploring the phone itself for clues versus throwing it away immediately like some diseased thing. When it suddenly lit up and started vibrating, I let out a high scream. I almost dropped it, and after several seconds of panicked fumbling, I opened it and answered the call it was receiving from a restricted number. Hello? There was a silence, but I could tell someone was on the line. Hello? Is anyone there? Did you look inside the box? The voice was feminine, but with a strange husky rasp that made it hard to guess the age or accent. I almost dropped the phone again as my hands went numb. Uh, what? Who is this? Did you watch one of those movies? Did you explore what else is in there? No, no, I didn't. I didn't watch anything or even look in the box. It's some of my stuff, and I'll happily liar. The phone crackled slightly at the word. I knew you watched one of the discs. It pinged off the server when you started it up. Why do you lie about this? My mind was racing. Server? What was she? And then I remembered. Some Blu-rays automatically connected to the internet. Usually it's to upload new movie trailers, but this one had apparently been made to let someone know if the disc was being watched. Is that even possible? It didn't matter. I needed to deal with this nut job first. Look, I'm sorry. I loaded the disc, but when I realized it wasn't Independence Day, I cut it off. So I don't know what you're talking about, and I think you should go now. I was edging further into my apartment now, and my hands were starting to tremble just from the adrenaline. It seemed like a reasonable lie, but why wouldn't she fucking answer? Then finally, I don't believe you. She drew out the words like she was expressing some kind of corruption from a pregnant boil and savored the smell of doing so. She gave a short laugh and her voice crackling again louder. (laughs) But that's alright, I think. We can work with this. I think, yes? By this point, I'd moved far enough into my apartment that something caught my eye in my bedroom. 
Turning to look, I saw that the bed, floor, and walls had been draped in clear plastic tarps. I took three unconscious steps toward my room as my mind tried to reconcile what I was seeing with how the room should be. I felt the static buzz of panic rising in my ears, and as I approached, I could see that small black video camera set perched upon a tripod in the corner of the room, its red recording light glaring at me like a baleful eye. I was about to back away and leave the apartment when I heard two small creaks, one from the bedroom and then half a second later the other from the phone. I saw the plastic tarp on the left side of the room billow as my closet door was pushed open. I dropped the phone and ran. I didn't stop running until I was three blocks away and safely under the fluorescent lights of a local pharmacy. I dropped my own phone as well at some point in all this, so I asked to use theirs and called the police. Twenty minutes later, they pulled up, and after I gave an explanation, they went with me back to the apartment. The two officers went in first, and after they cleared the apartment, they came back out. Their initial expressions of mild interest and concern had been replaced with irritation, and when I went inside with them, I understood why. The tarps and camera were gone, as was the mystery phone. Even the box of movies, which I'd left sitting next to the TV in the living room, was missing. And no Independence Day box or snuff film disc. No trace that any of it had happened. The police weren't rude, but they clearly thought it was either a dumb prank or I was on something. Either way, they left quickly, and I could tell they wouldn't be writing a report on it. Not that I could blame them. I spent the next week in a motel as I went through the process of breaking my lease and finding a new place on the other side of town. That was over a month ago, and since then everything has been fine, boring even. At first, I dreaded every single phone call, every visitor at work, and every event that could potentially be her making contact again. But I was moving past it, and the new apartment was actually nicer with better security. So when I walked in today and saw the box sitting on my sofa, I actually had a moment when I was confused. And then I saw the words written on the side in black marker. Private valuables. I almost left the apartment then, but there was a sticky note above the old labeling. When I was closer, I could see it was the same handwriting, though this had been written in pencil. It said, We still have much work to do, yes? Yes? 